If you have your copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to turn to Luke chapter 11. I'm not going to go to Revelation tonight. I'm going to let Pastor Brandon handle that. <laughs> As you're turning there, I want to tell you a little bit of a, a, a story um, that I heard. And I don't know if you enjoy history or not, but there's a figure in history that I find uh, just fascinating. Uh, his name is Alexander the Great. And surely you've heard of this man. He is by far the greatest conqueror in all of history. In fact, by, he, when he was still in his 20s, he had conquered two-thirds of the size of the United States, stretching from India to Egypt to Greece. And there's this story of Alexander, even though that he was known as a ruthless conqueror and he was extremely harsh and he did not mind killing people, there's a story of his generosity that goes like this. Though at the end of Alexander's life, a general approached him. And this general said, Alexander, I've served you faithfully for years. I've never asked you for anything. And now I just have one request. And Alexander uh, looked at him and said, what, what do you want? And his general replied, I'd like for you to pay for my daughter's wedding. And Alexander looked at his general up and down and said, well, you know what? You've served me faithfully all these years and I will happily pay for the wedding and go and speak to my treasurer about it. And a few days later, the treasurer of Alexander the Great came to Alexander and said, you cannot let this wedding happen. Your general is completely taking advantage of you. And this wedding will be the greatest in the land, the greatest that anyone has ever seen. And Alexander looked at his treasure and he said this, no, I want you to give him everything he's asking for. Because my general is paying me two compliments. First, he thinks I am wealthy enough to afford all that he's asking for. And secondly, he thinks that I am sufficiently generous that I will give him everything he asks for. And in these two things, he honors me. You see, I want to argue tonight that Alexander the Great may have been an extremely evil and wicked man, and yet he was able to be generous to those he loved. And how much more is our Father in heaven generous to his children? Amen. How much more is our good and gracious, loving God begging to give us what we ask? And so tonight, I want to present a filter, a filter, if you will, of how we are to pray as disciples of Jesus Christ. You see, prayer is one of those things in the church that a lot of us were uncomfortable with it. We don't know how to pray, and if we're just honest, we really don't even pray that much. And so tonight, I want you to leave this building having no excuse on how to pray that you can't claim ignorance for not praying. And furthermore, I want you to see that your relationship with your father will be so much better when you enter into communion with him in prayer every day. And so I wanna uh, turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, and Jesus is going to show us uh, really three things. He's gonna present to us first a paradigm for prayer. Or another word we could use is a model for prayer. And then after that, Jesus is going to show us the necessary persistence in prayer through the use of a parable. And then he's going to finish with a logical uh, argument that shows us the provision of prayer. Okay, so that's where we're going. The paradigm for prayer, persistence in prayer, and the provision in prayer. Let me read you this quote and then we'll jump into Luke chapter 11. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, says this, a deeper knowledge of God brings with it improvement in these areas, purity, integrity, a willingness to sacrifice, faithfulness in evangelism, better study of the scriptures, improved private and corporate worships, better relationships, a heart for the loss, and so much more. And he says that one of the foundational steps in gaining that deeper knowledge of God is through prayer. You see, if we're truly going to grow in our knowledge and grow as Christians and be the disciples that Jesus has called us to be, we have to be serious about prayer. 
So if you're there with me, Luke chapter 11, I want to read the first 13 verses and see how Jesus instructed the disciples how to pray. Starting in verse 1, Luke records this. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up. Sorry, I lost my place. Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask them? Join me in prayer for a second. Father in heaven, would you fill me with your spirit? Guard my tongue, Lord, from saying anything that is not true of your character or your word. And Father, would you come and speak to your people for your sake and your glory so that your people would experience intimacy with you like they never have. And King Jesus, come quickly. We long for you. In Christ's name, amen. You see, what Luke does in, this, in his gospel is he records this section of what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer in a totally different portion than the gospel Matthew does. See, Luke records this on the heels of two narratives, a narrative about a lawyer coming to him and asking uh, what he must do to inherit eternal life. And what follows is Jesus tells a parable of the Good Samaritan. And then after that narrative, Jesus, uh, or Luke records a story of Jesus and his interaction with Mary and Martha. And what Luke is showing us in these narratives, and what I believe also in chapter 11, is he is instructing us how we are to relate to our God. In other words, how are we to understand our relationship with our king? And in chapter 11, Jesus jumps right into the thick of it and teaches us how to pray. You see, look at how this passage starts in verse 1. It says that Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. You see, what I want you to notice is that the catalyst for this teaching on prayer came from the disciples' acknowledgement of Jesus' commitment to prayer. Listen, if I can just give you any encouragement or any application right at the start of this message is that if Jesus needed to pray, how much more do we need to be praying? If our holy God who wrapped himself in flesh still had to go away and find a desolate place to commune with the Father, how much more do we need to be communing with the Father as fallen sinful people? You see, Jesus' example spurred the disciples on to ask this question. I I love this quote by Martin Luther, talking about the importance of prayer in the Christian's life. He says this, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. In other words, in the same way that our world would exalt the profession, truly the profession of a Christian is that we would pray to our Father in heaven. 
And listen, let me just give you this encouragement or this challenge. If you're a parent in the room, I don't care if your kid is two years old or 22 years old. You want to disciple well in the home? It begins with modeling it. You want your kids to have an intimate prayer life? Pray with them. Don't just tell them to pray. Don't just pray with them at the bedside. No, I mean show them that you intimately commune with the Father. And there are times where you just weep before God. Because only then will they recognize that your faith is genuine. You see, we don't give kids a lot of credit. And I've been working with them now for two years in student ministry. Let me tell you, they're smart. They're smart. They don't want you to know that because they'd rather just keep their room messy and dirty. (laughs) They want you to think they're not listening. But in all reality, they are watching you closer than anyone else in this world, looking to see if your words match your actions. And older parents, even if your kids are adults, they're still watching you. So the first role of discipleship that I would argue for is that we model prayer in the home, just like Jesus does here for the disciples. And so out of this question, that, or out of this, this request for the disciples to be taught how to pray, Jesus enters into what I'm calling a paradigm of prayer. A paradigm of prayer. And it's given in verses two through four, you know it, as the Lord's Prayer. And here's what I want you to see in the Lord's Prayer. That Jesus first teaches us to have the correct posture for prayer before we come to, G- or to come to God with our petitions. Let me say that again. God wants us to have the correct posture before we come with our petitions or what we ask. Let me show you in the text. Jesus starts with this word, Father. Father. And immediately what Jesus has just done is he showed us that prayer is an intimate action. That God is not someone who is far off and is away from us and that we have to really struggle and try to get to him, but that he is our father. There is no greater intimacy than the intimacy of that in a family. And immediately Jesus says, your father in heaven truly is your father. He wants us to know that we have direct access to God. That we don't have to go through someone else But I want you to notice that in order to call God Father, we've got to recognize the context here. And Jesus is talking to disciples. So truly the only person who can come to God in prayer and call him Father are are those who have surrendered their life to following Jesus. And maybe you're here tonight and you think you're a Christian, you think you've been walking with Jesus, but you've never really surrendered. You've never repented of sins and put your faith in Jesus. And let me just tell you, tonight's the night to do it. Why wait? Because what I'm going to show you in this text is that the intimacy and the joy and the peace that you're going to find in communing with the Father is greater than anything in the world. So why wait? Because without this, you can't call him Father. You see, Paul writes in Ephesians 1.5 that in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. It is only through Jesus that we enter into the family of God and have access to the Father. So Jesus starts with calling God Father because he wants us to know that this is an intimate action. You see, there's this this picture that I want to give you. For those of you who have kids, or maybe you can remember when you were a kid, you remember when you really wanted something and now it seems ridiculous that you would even ask for that, but you would go so boldly to your parents asking for it with no shame. Hey, mom and dad, I want a unicorn. I want one tomorrow. Can you do that? Like, and there's no shame. It's complete boldness in a kid's life. That's the attitude that Jesus is describing that we have when we come to God in prayer. He wants us to come with this beautiful boldness and just acceptance that he is our father and our king. Now, maybe you're sitting here tonight and you say, I I can't call God father because I was so deeply hurt by my own father. 
And if that's you tonight, can I just say I'm sorry? Because that's not what a father's supposed to be. Because the first father is God and all fathers on this earth are to represent him. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine the perfect father. And maybe even for those of you who are here who had a great father, I want you to throw out all the flaws of your earthly dad and to put in all of the good qualities you wish he had. And I want you to imagine this man, his patience, his love, his support, his grace, his discipline that was loving. I want you to picture it all, the perfect dad. And guess what? He's puny compared to your heavenly father. He falls so short in comparison to who your heavenly father really is. So let me just encourage you, come to God and call him father. But next, Jesus teaches us that when we come to God, our posture is not only of intimacy and calling God father and that we can come confidently, but secondly, we are to hallow his name. You see, this idea of hallow is the idea of setting apart or calling holy. And what uh, Luke, or what Jesus is teaching his disciples is that although we are to come to God confidently and with this intimacy in mind, we must do so humbly because our God is holy and we are sinners. He wants us to make sure that we fall on our face and we have the reaction of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six when he enters the temple and says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. You see, but Jesus does this, he's teaching us this, not because he wants us to be afraid of God, no, because that's why he started with calling God Father, and I love this. Jesus starts with wanting us to know the intimacy that we have in prayer with God, and then he puts on the heels of that, but don't forget that your God is holy, and he is high and lifted up to you. It's this idea that we can come to God confidently, but we must do so humbly at the same time as his child. I want to make this point. What what Jesus is showing us here in this having the correct posture of prayer before we ask God for anything, he's teaching us this point, that prayer is not ultimately about us receiving what we want, but rather it's about receiving a heart that trusts the good and faithful Father we are praying to. Let me say that again, because that is so counterculture to what the church teaches. Prayer is not ultimately about us receiving what we want or what we're asking, but rather it's about receiving a heart that trusts the good and faithful Father that we are praying to. Jesus wants us to know before we can even come to the Father, we have to have the correct posture that we're his child, that he's holy and he's saved us. And then and only then can we begin to ask God for things. So next, I want you to look at the first petition that Jesus gives us. He tells us to pray, your kingdom come. Now this may seem like a weird request, but really what Jesus is teaching us to pray is that God's power and glory would be manifested upon this earth among all creation. Literally, what Jesus is wanting us to pray is that God's justice would come down on earth and that sin and evil and wickedness would be eradicated. I don't know about you, but I am desperately praying that Roe v. Wade would be overturned because I am so sick of unborn babies never having a chance to meet the King and Savior that I worship. They're robbed of that opportunity. And they're robbed of the opportunity that we have to worship our king in this earth. So we pray your kingdom come. This this idea, this petition is kingdom focused. Immediately what Jesus wants us to pray for is nothing to do with ourselves, but everything to do with our God and his glory. Listen, church, if we are ever going to have kingdom-focused prayers, we're going to have to start living kingdom-focused lives. Because your greatest desire in your heart will be what you spend the most time praying about. Let me say that again. What you desire most in your heart will be what you spend the most time praying about. 
How convicting is that? Let me give you this question. If God was to answer all of your prayers in the past month exactly how you want him to answer them, whose kingdom would benefit? God's kingdom or your kingdom? Listen, I'm plowing in my own field tonight because I know that my prayers, they're Tanner focused, not kingdom focused. But listen, when we find ourselves not praying kingdom focused prayers, it's because we didn't spend enough time in verse two. We didn't spend enough time reflecting on the fact that we serve our father and he's master, not me. I'm his servant. We didn't spend enough time saying, hallowed be your name, King Jesus. Because immediately we jump into asking things for ourselves. Jesus says, let it not be so. Your prayer life must be kingdom focused. So I would urge you tonight, if your prayer life is not kingdom focused, to go back to verse two and simply sit and say, Father, hallowed be your name. Father, hallowed be your name. And don't move until that sits in. The next request that Jesus teaches us to pray for is in verse three, and he says, give us each day our daily bread. You see, this request shifts to a more self-focused petition, but in all reality, this petition is so that we can fulfill the first one. You see, how are we to be kingdom-minded people unless God meets our daily needs? You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's pulling directly from the Old Testament with Israel wandering in the wilderness. He's reminding his disciples of this story where God rained down bread from heaven that would only last one day. And it was to teach Israel to trust their God, that he would provide and he would be enough for them. And in the same way, Jesus says, pray, give us each day our daily bread. Jesus doesn't want us to pray for what we want. He doesn't pray for things that we wish we had. No, he says, pray for what you need today. Because bread is symbolic of the necessities of life. And here's what I love about every single one of these petitions. Every single petition that Jesus tells us to pray for is met with a promise. Uh, let me go back to the first petition, your kingdom come. Let me show you what I mean. You see, as Christians, we have this hope that Jesus is indeed coming back. And so the prayer for your kingdom to come, we're asking for something that God's already promised us. You say, well, that seems silly. Why do I need to pray for something that God's already promised me? Because it's not about you getting what you want, it's about your heart being transformed into the heart of your king. And in the same way, this second petition, give us each day our daily bread, Jesus has promised us that he would never leave us nor forsake us. Our needs will be met, but we are to pray so that our heart would trust our king who promised them. L listen to what Jesus says. I hope this is an encouragement to you. He writes, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And Jesus gives us this encouragement. Our God will take care of us. We have no need to worry. But while Jesus, I think, is instructing us to pray for daily needs, I really think that Jesus is also instructing us to do more than when we pray for daily bread. 
You see, I don't think this is just about a physical need, but this is also about a spiritual need. Uh, Let me read you what Jesus says in John chapter six. He says this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see, what I think Jesus is trying to tell us here is that our daily need is simply bread and he's the bread we need. Because I don't know about you, but every single day I wake up and I say, Jesus, I just need more of you. I just need more of you. And I think if our prayers were more, were more about Jesus, I just want more of you, we wouldn't struggle so much with our hearts being bent towards the world and towards sin and evil and wickedness. Can I just challenge you tonight to go home and pray, Jesus, I just want you. I don't need anything else. I just want you and I want more of you. I wanna taste more. So Jesus says, give us each day our daily bread. Jesus, give me enough of you to last today. Jesus teaches the disciples next that they are to ask for forgiveness of their sins. You see, little did the disciples know that in just a few days, their king would go die on a cross and that truly he would provide the forgiveness of sins so that they could live in eternity with him. But I don't want you to view this petition as something, uh, uh, the picture of a courtroom. No, I want you to continue to view this as the picture of a father and a son or a father and a daughter. Because what Jesus is teaching us here is how we can maintain a healthy relationship with our father, even though we are sinners. As we think about this, I can't help but think of 1 John 1, 9, where the apostle John writes this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you ever studied that verse? Because quite literally what God is telling us through the Apostle John is that when we ask for forgiveness, it is out of God's character to say no. That not one time for you to ever go to Jesus and say, Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. For him to say no would be outside of his character. The Apostle John says he's faithful and just to forgive us. Because of the sacrifice of our king, he forgives. And church, that's enough to shout and holler and go screaming and dancing out the hallway. What a king we serve. But he goes on to say that not only are we to ask for forgiveness, but this is the one we really wish Jesus wouldn't have said. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Jesus is teaching us if we're to ask for forgiveness from the Father, then we also have to extend forgiveness to others. You see, a Christian must always be ready and willing to forgive. No, I'm not saying it's gonna be easy. It will be very difficult. But for you to truly understand the gospel and the grace that your king has displayed to you, there is nothing that anyone could ever do to you and you not forgive them. You see, there's a story that comes to mind as I think about this idea of extending grace and forgiveness. There was a missionary who gave his life to going and reaching an unreached people group. Uh, They were natives to this rainforest and no one had ever been there. And the group of men went in and they shared the gospel and they began to make relationships with these natives until one day the relationship turned and the natives killed all of the men. You see, the beautiful picture of that horrific story is that seven years later, a native who killed one of the men would baptize the daughter of one of those missionaries. As this whole native tribe accepted Jesus and one of the leaders of the group who killed the missionaries would baptize his daughter as she accepted in Jesus. 
Truly, if we've experienced grace and we experience forgiveness, church, we've got to be the ones who extend it as well. I love this quote by J.D. Greer. He says, the gracelessness of so many professing Christians shows that many have likely never experienced the power of the gospel. If you can't extend grace, I'm not real sure you really understand the gospel. You see, once again, we're left the end of examining this prayer, worshiping our king for how great he is. The final, the final petition that Jesus tells us to pray for is that uh, we would not be led into temptation. You see, Jesus knew that we would need divine strength to be able to stand firm against the enemy. And I don't know if Jesus had in mind of the betrayal of Judas as he said these words, but I'm inclined to think so. I don't know if Jesus was thinking of Peter who would deny him three times right before his betrayal, but I'm inclined to think so. I do know that your king sits in heaven and he says, my son and my daughter need my strength to walk a life of holiness. And so church, we are to plead with the Lord, not just ask, plead and get on our knees and beg that he would empower us to resist temptation. You see, this final request, this final petition leaves us with this truth that our God is greater than sin and we can overcome temptation. It has no power over us. If you don't believe me, go read Romans chapter six. Paul says we were buried with Christ and we've experienced victory over sin because of it. So Jesus has given us a paradigm for prayer that begins with the correct posture and then moves to the correct petitions. But in verses five through 10, Jesus is gonna show us the necessary persistence that's needed for prayer. The necessary persistence needed in prayer. You see, Jesus concludes his teaching or he shifts his teaching in verse five to telling this parable. And we've gotta know a lot of uh, context and the cultural uh, surroundings of Jesus' day to really understand this parable. First, we have this idea of a friend who comes to someone at midnight. And he says, lend me, or he, he has a friend who comes and he has no food to give him. You see, we have to realize that it's not like today where we could just run down to Walmart and get a loaf of bread. We can't run down to Dollar General if Walmart's closed. In this day and age, they created food for the day-to-day -day because of fear that it would spoil. And so this, this, uh, this friend, he has a traveler who comes to him and he desires food. And we have to understand that Middle Eastern culture, especially today, but even more so in the time of Jesus, was extremely concerned with hospitality. Now listen, as a bunch of Southern Baptists, we know all about some good old hospitality. You're not gonna let somebody come in your house and not offer them a sweet tea or a glass of water. In the same way, this is how it was in Jesus's day. To have a traveler come to you, you had to put food on the table. You see, this reminds me of a story. Uh, several years ago, my dad and a group of men from this church, uh, they went overseas to Greece to witness to refugees uh, from all over the Middle East uh, fleeing ISIS. And, and part of that trip, they went into these refugee camps where there were quite literally just tents that people were living in. And they found a Christian living in this refugee camp. And so they entered into the home just to talk with them, to pray with them, to encourage them. And while they were there, the wife or the mother of the home, uh, she started making a cake for the whole group. And she served them a cake. And then she made them coffee which in Greece, coffee is just grounds with a little bit of water poured over it. That's all it was, just kind of crunchy. And she gives them coffee and she sends her kids with all the money they had left for the month to go to the store and buy some Cokes. And literally this family who had nothing, living in a tent, spent all of their money and their food for these guests who had more money than this family would ever dream of having. And they did so all because their culture said you were to be hospitable. This is the culture that Jesus is telling this story in. And so to not serve this bread to this traveler would have been dishonorable and very shameful. 
And it says that the friend, because he doesn't have any bread, will go to his neighbor and he'll knock on the door and he'll say, friend, lend me some, bro- some loaves. I have no bread. And what does Jesus say in the story but that the neighbor will respond and say, don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. Now, Jesus is not talking about Parker and Parker's son, Bryce, who still sleeps in the bed with him. No, he's talking about the culture of this day where everyone lived in the same room. It was one giant room with beds everywhere. And so when the knock came in the middle of the night, all of the kids just woke up. Now, if you have small kids, you can realize how frustrating that would be. I had a conversation with Hannah. I said, listen, honey, we're 17 days away from getting married, but listen, let's, let's wait a couple years before we have kids. Because I've had school for four years straight and I can't remember the last time I slept. And I just want to sleep a little bit. So let's wait before we have some kids. You can realize how frustrating this would be for the neighbor. And Jesus goes on to say that this neighbor will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. No, he will get up and give him the bread because of his impudence. This word, impudence. Now, in the Greek language, this impudence is an idea of shameless boldness. And there's really no good translation in the English language for what this word is trying to represent other than this picture. A little kid coming to his daddy in the middle of the night and asking for something. That's the only picture that I can give you. And commentators agree that there's nothing else that shows what impudence is other than a little kid who's shamelessly asking his father for something, knowing that his father will give him something. And this is Jesus' point of the whole story. He's saying if an evil man, a neighbor, will get up and give you something because of your persistence and your boldness, how much more will your heavenly father give you? How much more will your heavenly father answer you when you pray? What Jesus is doing here is he is comparing an evil, wicked neighbor to God and saying, if this one does it, how much more will your God do it? And maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, wait, so I have to pray persistent, bold prayers to really hear God's answer? Like I have to pray multiple times and pray boldly And in that, I like change God's mind. No, not at all. That is not what I'm saying. I love what J.D. Greer says about this passage and in this tension of how God works in our persistent prayer. He says this, God only gives some things in response to ongoing, patient, relentless, impudent, bold, shamelessly persistent prayer. God delights to share his power with those who are bold enough to bother him. I love that. God delights to share his power with those who are bold enough to bother him. Another commentator talking about this passage says this, God often waits for our passionate persistence in prayer. It isn't that God is reluctant and needs to be persuaded. No, our persistence doesn't change God, it changes us developing in us a heart and passion for what God wants. Let me just remind you again that prayer is less about what you want and what you're asking for and more about your heart being transformed into the heart of your king. And Jesus goes on after the end of this parable, verse nine, a very well-known verse, you know it. He says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now Jesus is, the, the, the use of these verbs that Jesus uses, the tense of them, is this continual, never ceasing asking, knocking, and seeking. We never stop. And Jesus is not arguing that we would receive everything we ask for from our king. No, he's arguing that we would be persistent, bold prayers. And we would approach our king with a boldness and a persistence like nothing else. Only then do the words of the psalmist, chapter 37, verse four, come true when he says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Because what happens in our persistent, bold prayers is that God begins to change our hearts 
And as our hearts change, our desires change. And as our desires change, our prayers change. And next thing we know, we're not praying the same prayer. We're praying exactly what God wants us to be praying for. And when you're aligned with the will of God, there's no sweeter place to be in. So pray persistent, bold prayers. In fact, I would encourage you to pray like Paul did. I want you to pray so persistent and so boldly that God has to tell you to stop praying for it. Because that's exactly what Paul did. Paul said, God, take this thorn out of my flesh. Take it out of my side. I'm tired of it. And after three times of praying for it, God said, Paul, I'm not taking it away. You're going to have to stay and just tough it out. I want you to pray so persistently that God has to tell you, stop praying for that. And then choose to trust him. So pray persistently. Last thing, verses 11 through 13. I want you to see this. Provision in prayer. Listen, this is a difficult task put ahead of us by Jesus. To not pray selfishly. To pray with a posture that's correct before we enter into asking for God for stuff. But Jesus teaches us in these last three verses that he has provided everything we need for prayer. And in fact, I think Jesus was expecting the disciples to question what he said in verses 9 and 10. That we would receive what we ask for and we would find what we seek for. And when we knock it would be open. And so he says this. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give? And here's Jesus' point. Once again, if you who are evil earthly men, I want you to think of your father. You probably have a great father. I have an awesome dad who has taught me how to follow Jesus and has modeled it. And I'm gaining a father through marriage that has done the exact same thing. But I know one thing, they're nothing compared to my heavenly father. Because my heavenly father gives me such greater gifts and he gives me exactly what I need. And so maybe you're sitting here tonight again and you're saying, I can't, I can't wrap my mind around calling God Father because my Father was so awful. It just invites you to search the scriptures and see who your Father really is. Find his character and worship him. You see, Jesus is encouraging us that no one gives greater gifts than our Heavenly Father. And I love this. And Luke, Luke records the ending of this narrative different than the other gospel writers. You see, the other gospels record this last verse of how much more will the heavenly father give you greater gifts? But in Luke's gospel, Luke records it this way. Look and see how he writes the end of verse 13. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You say, why why is there a disconnect? Is there an error in God's word? Absolutely not. Here's what Luke is teaching us. The greatest of gifts that we could ever have is the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And truly, our king has given him to us. A helper, a comforter. You see, my mentor, Joel Angel, he told me this quote. He said that the greatest of parents give of themselves to their children. And our heavenly father gave his son and his spirit to us. The Holy Spirit is the greatest gift we've ever been given. But maybe you're sitting there tonight and you're like, where did the Holy Spirit come from? Like he wasn't present at all until the very last verse. Let me show you that he was present from verse 1 through verse 13. Go back to the petitions of Jesus' prayer. Who is it that helps us be kingdom-focused people but the Holy Spirit in guiding us and directing our hearts and our desires? Who is it that provides our daily needs and meets us where we are every single day but the Holy Spirit, our helper? And who is it that prompts the conviction in our hearts so that we can ask for forgiveness but the Holy Spirit? 
And who is it that empowers us to extend grace to those who have sinned against us but the Holy Spirit? And who is it that will guard us and strengthen us to not fall into temptation but the Holy Spirit? You see, but it gets better because not only is the Spirit present in the petitions, but he's present in the posture. How is it that we know that God is holy but the Holy Spirit who prompts that we are sinful people? And how is it that we have access to our Father but through the Spirit? In every single way, the Holy Spirit is at work. I love this verse. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22 speaks of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians. And Paul writes this, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put also his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This word that Paul uses in the Greek guarantee, it gives this picture. It's a promise that will be fulfilled. And the greatest modern day expression that I could give you is that of an engagement ring. You see, on October 15th, I got down on a knee and I gave my fiance a ring that promised that I loved her and that I would marry her. And in the same way, Jesus or Paul is teaching us that the Holy Spirit is our engagement ring until our groom comes to take us home. So that conviction you feel in your heart, don't push it away, embrace it. That your groom, your king loves you. You see, but this picture goes even further because we are living in the engagement period. And I don't know about you guys, if you've ever been married, if you've ever walked through a marriage, but the engagement period, there's a lot of work to be done. Hey, and guess what? There's a lot of work to be done right now in the age of the church. And the power by which we have to do that is the Holy Spirit. And guess what? On our wedding day and after our wedding day, it doesn't matter if Hannah wears that engagement ring. Because you know why? She'll have a wedding band that symbolizes that I'm hers and she's mine. And in the same way, when we enter into heaven, when our king returns, we have no more need for the spirit. Because we don't just get one person of the Trinity, we get all three. Amen. We stand in the presence of the triune God and we worship. I have no need for this engagement ring anymore because I get it all. My groom has returned and the church will experience life that is without pain and suffering and death and disease, and boy, I can't wait. Amen. But until then, until then, I need the power of the Spirit in prayer. I hope you find rest in this verse. Paul writes in Romans, for those of us, we have times where we, gosh, we don't even know how to pray. We don't know what to pray for, Find comfort in this verse. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What a promise that the spirit living inside of you when you don't know how to pray, hey, guess what? He prays for you and he intercedes to the Father on your behalf. What a God we serve. A father who gives of himself over and over and over again. Join me in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And Father, lead us not into temptation. Father, would you create the posture in our hearts right now? A posture that is centered upon 
the fact that we are a son or a daughter of the living God who reigns over this universe. Father, would you give us a confidence to draw near to your throne? But Father, we also hallow your name, that you are holy. Lord, humble us. Remind us that we are sinners. King Jesus, we pray that your kingdom would come. Lord, that justice would roll down on this earth. That wickedness would be put to an end and righteousness would prevail. Lord, how we long to see the day where you throw the serpent into the fiery lake. Jesus, bring your kingdom. Come quickly. Jesus, would you give us our daily bread? Lord, just give us more of yourself because that's all we need, Jesus. Tear down the idols in our hearts and Jesus, you set your throne upon our heart. Lord, I pray that you would make us restless until we rest in you as our only king. Father, I ask that you would forgive us your sons and your daughters, who you've called holy, and yet, Lord, we run back to sin. Lord, forgive us. We plead the blood of Jesus and his righteousness. And Father, as you forgive us, would you empower us to forgive others? Oh, that this church would be full of people who love others well and who extend grace so quick. Lord, would you make us different than this world? Help us to be men and women who forgive often. And Father, keep us from temptation. Empower us, Lord. Strengthen us. Embolden us to be witnesses for your kingdom. Oh, that we would be a kingdom-focused people and church. Oh, God. I pray that High Point, North Carolina would be a different city because of Green Street Baptist Church. Lord, would you do it for your glory? Father, have your will and have your way in our hearts. I pray that you would prune what needs to be pruned, even when it hurts. Do it for your glory, King Jesus, so that every single person would know that he is king of all. We long for your return, Jesus. Help us to be good stewards of what you've given us until then. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, I pray that you would live this week with an intimacy with the Father that you've never experienced. Follow the paradigm that Jesus has given us for prayer. Be persistent and know that he has provided everything you need. Church, you're sent this week.